Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Today it's another one of our LTP Selects Sherlock episodes. And this is where Josh and I go back into the archive and we pull out a couple of our favorite uh, conversations from uh, bygone years. And this one comes from November of 2017, so uh, mm-hmm. nigh on four and a half years anyway, closer to five really. And it is, of course, the second part to our previous chat on the death and resurrection of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> we talk, of course, yeah. about the empty house. The empty house, yes. The second half of a two-parter that uh, Conan Doyle wrote, not intentionally had to be a two-parter, but in That's terms right, of if yeah. you look at Sherlock Holmes as a serialized story, if mm-hmm. you put them all together in their own chronology, you could say that, yes, it is a two-parter uh, because we get that season finale cliffhanger of Holmes dying. And then, of course, well, we know, you know, that they got to make money and to get advertising and you know that's how hollywood and the tv industry works or what have you so that's we're always right. going to bring sherlock holmes back back what are you talking about he renewed his contract he's staying on for a couple more years uh <laughs> to right. arthur conan doyle's chagrin and that wasn't really the case for the return of sherlock holmes uh the reason no. why sherlock holmes returned was because a mass the mass fandom uh that was already gathered because of the popularity of his stories pretty much revolted against this death and they demanded a return for their hero so Mm -hmm. and this is what Mm -hmm. this was the result i even read that the strand lost like thousands and Mm -hmm. thousands of subscribers because of this yeah and i don't know if it is in this episode or if it's in the one that we presented a little bit earlier this summer um our chat on the final problem but yeah we did talk about that i think how many subscribers were lost but now we should also st- say, Josh, that the uh, the adventure of the empty house was published almost ten years after the uh, falls of Reichenbach in the yes. final problem. We had, of course, a, a few years hiatus where Doyle thought he wasn't coming back to Holmes. Then there was the public outcry. His own mother was telling them that he needed to get this character back into circulation, <laughs> and uh, or and so anyway, he wrote uh, he wrote what many believe is the. The, the finest Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. And uh, that that's a standalone novel. And and it is situated prior to the, final the action. Yeah, prior to the final problem. So The Empty House is the true return of Sherlock Holmes that matches up the end of the final problem. Now, I mean, most of you listening to this will know that already. But um, for those of you who are not familiar or au fait with the kind of timeline and chronology of Sherlock Holmes as the, the character, supposedly he dies and is written off in uh, 1893. I, thought, I think the story is set in 1891. And uh, then this one picks up again, right? Three years after right. 1894. Yeah. yeah, That's right. So in a way, when he continues after the empty house, he is writing in the past still because he's filling up that gap in between, right? So Totally, yeah. What are, what are your um, your feelings of The Empty House? I mean, obviously we share them in the episode, but that was five years ago almost. Um, have you warmed to it since or have you cooled off since? I, I actually, I think it's a better story than The Final Problem. I think it's just, you know, like it brings you kind of in media rest with Sherlock Holmes is dead and now Watson is on his own and there's been a murder and it's the murder of this mm-hmm. Odair kid. Mm-hmm. Like it presents as a new mystery. It presents Watson on his own and, and dealing with that and being part of that. And then, of course, we have the return of Sherlock Holmes occurring. And I guess it's because he's coming back and we are and we have that sense of everything is back to order now and we're kind of returning to our old routine that it's enjoyable on that basis too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of think the same, you know. Um, I really did like some features of the final problem, even though I had problems with some of the characterization points and the sort of the, the quick arrival of this Moriarty antagonist. Um, which I think history has been much kinder to. We, we we got into that a little bit with our intro, didn't we, of the last episode we did. Uh, of that? Yeah. Um, but now we've got a, a really nice reunion, you know, between the two characters. And it, it is warm and it is caring. Um, the bromance is is uh, reignited. Back. Is back. Yeah, it's reignited. All the, all the is, shippers, all the, uh-huh. all the crack shippers should be happy then. So there you go. That's right. And I think Josh, to uh, to carry on with the at the X Files chat that we have seemingly so so heavily filtered into these early episodes, this is kind of Mulder resurrecting himself from the boxcar, isn't it? Yeah, season three, um, the Blessing Way paperclip, that whole storyline. Excellent. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and watch some of those as, again. Those they age well, man. Those X Files. The costumes don't, but the <laughs> the uh, we, we we probably won't get paid for this, but. 
they're on Disney Plus. Check it out. That's Xbox right. On yeah. Disney Plus, great yeah, series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To an extent, excellent. Yeah, no, it's it is. It's an excellent series, man. That that uh, filled up a lot of our adolescent, didn't it? it and young, it young did. adulthood. It uh, did absolutely. It definitely uh, inspired me, you know, to look at other similar kind of stories to that, and 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 enjoy narrative and storylines and in that respect so mm-hmm. it was an inspiration for me as much as james bond was or as much as sherlock holmes mm-hmm. was so yeah um so we've we've really enjoyed bringing these two um sherlock holmes stories back from the dead i guess it's quite, quite fitting form isn't it um mm-hmm. brushing off the dust and fixing up those old episodes and we we know guys we know that the recording quality isn't the greatest um you know it's a very amateur touch back in those days it still is <laughs> it still is amateur touch on our show but yeah. yeah, that's Trans- the transatlantic band. cable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, transatlantic cable, and also just you can look at it as like the garage band years of our podcast. <laughs> you could, yeah, if you wanted to, yeah. Good years, good years. Um, after this episode, we'll be coming back with a new, fresh read. We're going to be looking at K.W. Jeter's Noir, our first cyberpunk uh, text. I, I love this story when I read it 20 years ago, and I'm so delighted that we've got it on the, the list for this year. It's a tough read, man. The prose is dense. The story is complex. And like a lot of cyberpunk, really thought-provoking stuff, challenging themes, uh, really interesting, and a wonderful, wonderful connection to all of this noir stuff that you are you're sifting through and presenting for us. So this is a great yes. fit and uh, really, really cool stuff. Yeah. I hope you can yeah. enjoy that one as well. Yes. We hope you do too. All right. Well, uh, unless there's anything else you want to say, buddy, in preface to this, let's just close our Sherlock selects for the summer of 2022 with a new presentation of Doyle's The Empty House. Thanks everybody for listening and for your continued support. We hope you enjoy the show. I do. everywhere mm-hmm. well look pal here we are uh, the hound of the baskervilles is behind us and we've got the return of sherlock holmes ahead of us how do is you that feel a good thing, though is it good that the hound of the baskervilles is behind us i mean if you think about <laughs> yeah, that yeah. statement is that a good thing i, I don't know. know uh yeah let's we're now digging into the return of sherlock holmes uh and the first three stories from that volume the ones published in the strand originally uh, and then, of course, collected into The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Now, while Hound of the Baskervilles was basically uh, the return of Sherlock Holmes officially, I, you know, to to the whole the world, to the fandom, this is the conti- actual continuation, chronologically, in a way, of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Yeah. Because it is yeah. in the empty house where the cliffhanger, and that's that's pretty much exactly what it was, almost, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally. Li- literally, yes, Literally. Uh, was, in fact, will be concluded, I should say, in The Empty House. Mm -hmm. It will indeed. So we're going to jump into The Adventure of the Empty House. Uh, Now, The Adventure of the Empty House is the first short story that was published uh, that that would be added to the return of Sherlock Holmes, the 13-story collection at the end of the year, uh, the following year, I should say. Now, it's said in 1894, these stories, but of course, they weren't published until September 1903. That was the, the, when The Avenger of the Empty House was published in Strand Magazine. Uh, it concludes the story uh, threads from the final problem. Now, How the Baskervilles, as I mentioned earlier, was the official return, but The Empty House is kind of, the, it resolves, you know, as we talked about, that cliffhanger, that big event, you know, how does he come back from the dead, you know, like, how, how, how do you bring a character back to life who fell off a waterfall? So, yeah. So that's basically me giving you the publication information on it. Uh, it was published in September 1903 in the Strand Magazine, and I guess soon afterward, they did that big uh, annotated version of the books. Did, did, did that explain to you when the American publication was at all? or September 26, 1903 in Colliers. Oh, okay. Colliers is, is the American equivalent then. And it so, was the October edition of the Strand. 
Oh, okay. So, so, so the Americans had it before the British did. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things I'm going to talk about as well. I got, I got some information about his relationship, Doyle's relationship with the editor, um, with the Strand magazine. And there, it's not certainly isn't bad blood, but uh, the Strand was a little bit, a little bit miffed that um, Collier's got in there with a, a nicer offer to take the stories first. But we'll, we'll get to it. Um, oh, cool. You, you got any reviews? Any public yeah. thoughts? Uh, public thoughts. Well, if you count Goodreads, of course we count Goodreads. Yes. So one person said here that the tension is real. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I, I guess that's a fair statement. Sure. Uh, another person said, for a while, a story will drain you. Then the story will amuse you. Then the story will just be with you. But in the end, <laughs> the story will certainly astound you. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, and as one person eloquently also put it, ha 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 ha! Sherlock can be such a dick. I love it. Is that it? That's that that that's his review. Yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, well, well, with that um, cleared up for us, should I <laughs> yeah. should I get into our plot summary? Yeah, dive into that plot summary and see if we can clear up the fact. Uh, I'm sure wondering now, audience is wondering how Sherlock is a dick in this story. Okay. And, uh... <laughs> well, I, I can't promise. Um, I can't promise clairvoyance on that, but we'll we'll see what we can do. Mm. So, the adventure of the empty house. Despite its commercial success in 1903, the Hound of the Baskervilles didn't do much to tame the Bane throng of contemporary Sherlock devotees who were still awaiting a continuation of the great detective's chronology after plummeting over the Reichenbach Falls in the final problem. They didn't have too long to wait for that cozy leash and collar, however, as The Adventure of the Empty House appeared in October and domesticated their wild fury with answers. Well, sort of. Watson begins his tale by embodying the foreshadowed spirit of a navel-gazing blogger from the 21st century, apologizing for not being online in a while. No doubt, Doyle's ventriloquism act, meaning to assuage the frustrations of his own fans. I think Sherlock, in in the modern day, would, would would be in the basement... With, like, Cheetos and, like, a neck beard. <laughs> you could be right. Well, in the three years since that fateful Reichenbach fall, don't pardon the pun, Watson, a widower now, poor fellow, has been trying his hand at consultant work himself, more as a means of mourning his old roomie than anything else. Doyle offers no hard evidence that Watson was instrumental in revealing an awful lot of successes for the police, but isn't it cute to think so? One of the cases, the most intriguing, Watson states, was the murder of Ronald Adair, second son to the Earl of Maynooth. Now, you'd be forgiven for mistaking Maynooth as the name of a star system in the Star Wars universe, but actually, (laughs) its name comes from a sizable university town in County Kildare, Ireland. Like a lot of rich kids, Ronald moved in swanky circles and rubbed shoulders with the Oxford Street glitterati. But unlike a lot of them, he didn't have much in the way of entitlement about him. In fact, his distinct lack of enemies and his benevolent good nature made his death a widespread mystery. Who would want to shoot him? Well, one night after returning from a card game, Ronald was sitting over a ledger in his Park Lane study when... A soft-nosed revolver bullet moved through his head with great velocity, killing him instantly. Bravo on the sound effect, by the way. No problem. Um, I worked on that all week. You did, and man, it paid off. Well, I wasn't sure to go with a spit or a pow, and I just thought pow didn't fit the soft-nosed revolver bullet. Didn't no, it's not. It's, it's almost like 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 a you see like in the movies like the silencers, right? Mm-hmm. Like a yeah. like dip 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 or something or no thwip. 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 <laughs> I'm glad that, you that's, that's glad Spider-Man. you picked up on that. Yeah, <laughs> Watson tells us that his head had quote been horribly mutilated by the shot. The door was locked from the inside, and there is no conceivable motive for this murder. Authorities and family are both flummoxed. Upon the desk at which Ronald was working stood a few neat piles of money and names of his card-playing socializing pals penned into a ledger. Presumably, he was just making out to pay some of them off for his gambling here or there. This would have been entirely uh, acceptable and easy enough to do, and he and his playing partner, Colonel Sebastian Moran, had recently made a nice catch of 420 pounds at the tables. Thanks to his association with Holmes, Watson had no problem gaining entry to the crime scene and relates to us his confusion in chewing over these facts, just like everyone else involved. Another lock room mystery. No mongoose tracks with this one, though. Well, in pondering the case, on the corner of Oxford and Park Lane, Watson knocks into an elderly deformed man who chastises him for his clumsiness and snarls contemptibly in his direction. Fancy his surprise, then, when moments later the same distorted curmudgeon crawls into his Kensington study, apparently to apologize for his gruffness. Yeah, we can all smell the master of disguise in the room. 
All except for the good doctor, that is. When Holmes reveals himself, Watson faints for what he claims was, quote, the first and last time in my life. Uh, true or not, the resurrecting power of Brandy, and I don't know where the Brandy came from, maybe Sherlock just kept a flask on him, brought him back around and the two engage lovingly and Sherlock starts to fill in the three-year gap for his BFF with some incredible tales. First up, how he got out of the falls. Well, he never actually went into them. No, it turns out that Moriarty wasn't quite the scary end boss that Holm had originally thought. All it took was a sharp little baritsu to toss the old codger over the precipice and into his final shower. No, Holmes didn't stop for a coffee. Baritsu refers to an obscure form of Japanese wrestling that Holmes just happened to, conveniently, have knowledge of. Sherlock then tells Watson that he understood, at that moment, the incredible advantage that lay before him. If, like Moriarty, he too could become dead in the public eye, then he would be able to attack what remained of the Kingpin's criminal network from the shadows. Mm-hmm. But from really far away. How far, I hear you ask? Well, once he escaped Reichenbach and the Alps, itself not an easy task, as one of Moriarty's hired confederates hung around for a while launching boulders down the cliff like Donkey Kong after him. <laughs> he had yeah, we, we have we have end bosses and Donkey <laughs> we Kong do. and <laughs> yeah. you can see where you can see where my head was. Yes. Anyway, after this, Holmes headed to Tibet, where he smoked peace pipes with the Dalai Lama and undertook remarkable explorations under the name of a Norwegian phenom, Sigerson. Persia, Khartoum, and Montpellier all followed, before Holmes finally returned to London on learning, presumably from Mycroft, the only Alfred to his Batman for these three years, that only one of Moriarty's main men remained at large. Still, for his plan to work, he'd need to reveal himself to the enemy because, after three years, and the memory of a lot of boulders thrown at him, there's every chance that Moriarty's henchmen had given up. Anyway, tale told, friendship rekindled, and with such great timing since the death of Mary... Holmes tells Watson that he's close to solving the case of Ronald Adair's death and suspects that he'll apprehend the criminal this very night. Without giving too much away, Holmes infers that a masterful trap has been set. Well, Sherlock leads Watson on a labyrinthine cab ride through the alleys and back streets until they disembark the cab and enter, through the back, an empty house opposite their very own cherished 221B Baker Street. Mm-hmm. From that vantage point, they have a clear view into Holmes's study, and what a sight to behold! Silhouetted against the blind is the very double of Holmes himself. Oh, ruffling his feathers, pleasuring in Watson's befuddlement. Oh, how we've missed this patronizing. Holmes informs his partner that he commissioned the fine likeness of himself, a wax imposter, from Monsieur Oscar Menure of Grenoble. And though out of view, Mrs. Hudson was up there, on her knees no less, doing her best Macaulay Culkin Home Alone impression, tugging on strings to simulate movement and life. The reason? Well... These are the last steps in an intricate dance which Holmes has been having with Moriarty's last remaining associate. But before you can say Victorian sniper, in comes the dastardly shooter with intent to rid the world of Holmes once and for all. He sets up and fires a modified air rifle. Remember Holmes's fear of these in the final problem? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. almost immediately, the dynamic duo launched themselves like Adam West and Burt Ward upon the villain, having been <laughs> previously pepped. Inspector Lestrade emerges from the shadows like the trusting spaniel he is. Though, let's be honest, (laughs) it's great to see him back here. And the revelation can begin. To everyone's surprise, apart from Holmes's, of course, the shooter is none other than Colonel Sebastian Moran, Adair's friendly card-playing chum, and, according to Sherlock at least, the second most dangerous man in London. Not only was the colonel responsible for killing the Honourable Ronald Adair, the honest young nobleman was about to turn his pal in for cheating, by the way. Resulting at whist, in a, of all things. At whist, resulting in a very serious <laughs> social sentence. But he was also mixed up in the underworld of Moriarty, a disciple rabbit in that egregious warren of sin. Comfortably back in Baker Street, Holmes elucidates the colonel's character with further depth and color for Watson, and we learn just how scummy and talented he really was. Not just in his military and card-cheating careers, but in his Swiss boulder-throwing, too. Reunited and back in the public eye, Holmes, Watson, and the rest of the reading world settled more comfortably at long last into their ass grooves and prepare for the adventures that lie ahead. There we go. So the, the dynamic duo is reunited, and uh, the last of Moriarty's empire is uh, brought to justice. So you could say. Yeah. Now, here's what I'm wondering, because I never caught this in the text. Okay. Watson is a widow? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's largely presumed. Well, he's talking about when he meets Holmes, right? And <clears throat> and Holmes apologizes to him and then offers his condolences for his loss. And we presume that that's his wife who's passed. Oh. 
I, I never really thought of that at all. That's really interesting that Do- that Doyle just like killed her off in between. I guess if you're not really looking for it, it's easy to miss, eh? Like, yeah, uh, and I got to be honest, I'll put my hand up. I wasn't looking for it. The only reason I'm even picked up on that is because of Klinger's annotations. And while it hasn't even been proven, um, annotations are telling me that that's what most of the scholars believe, that this is when his wife dies. And, you know, Holmes's reappearance in his life couldn't be better timed. Interesting. I, I guess because it just—it's almost like as if like the writers were just sorry the writer I should say uh, was I wonder just fan demand just wanted just to have Watson and him at a two two one B Baker Street and maybe that was was more expedient for Doyle to have the two of them living there all the time you know in his further stories. I think you're probably right. It simplified a certain thing for him that he wouldn't have to he wouldn't have to worry about bringing Mary back in and but then again having said that. You know, he never worried about bringing her in anyway. Like, she was never there, so... I know, it's she's, like, non-existent, right? Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, so there we go. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and it kind of... I, have, I had a little rant about Watson, like, banning his wife uh, in, my, in my summary for the uh, Norwood Builder. So... All right. Uh, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you anyways, but... Uh, uh, still, that was a very good summation, uh, Mr. Powell. Good. Well, you know, give it to me anyway, because I, I don't know off the top of my head where the Norwood Builder lies in the chronology of the Holmes stories. Like, it, it could still, it, you know, all of these Return of Sherlock Holmes, I don't, I don't know that they're all meant to be after Reichenbach, but perhaps they are. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point as well. Because these things jump around so much. So, I guess uh, let's light those pipes. What are you in the mood for today? Something Occidental. Something Occidental. Yes. All right. That's that's kinky for you. Yeah. Norma- normally you just like it like a Toby. That's it. Old Toby, yeah. No, well, that's in Middle Earth, so that's hard to find. It doesn't stop you from asking for it every week. No, it doesn't. Okay, pal. Pipes are lit. We've got an acronym, which we probably don't need to explain, but it wouldn't be the same if we didn't. So, uh, BFG, what are we scoring here? So PIPES is an acronym, P is for principles, that's uh, Sherlock and Watson. Uh, then we have the investigation, which is basically the story, the narrative. Uh, then the third item, uh, P, perpetrators, that's the villain. Then we have the environs, and then we have the supporting casts. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, you want to start with the principles then? I will. Yeah, go ahead. Watson... Okay, he he honors his perceived uh, to be fallen comrade by pursuing his in, the, an interest in crime. So uh, that's how he gets upon the Ronald Adair crime scene is because he's pursuing his interest. He's keeping up the mantle, right? Mm. Um, if you look at um, in my thing here, uh, the the, pa- the pa- I don't want to give you the page number out here because I have the big complete collection here and it's not going to match what you have there. I'm sure. Right. Um, what are you looking at? Whereabouts are you? Yeah, so I'm in the second paragraph. Okay, and uh, this is very. This is a very good description of of Watson's state, and I think it really. Sh- I think in this story, Watson kind of is sort of almost like the primary character. Almost, it's the protagonist of this story in many ways, uh, because Sherlock comes into it by surprise, and it's and he's pursuing his own angle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be imagined that my close intimacy with Sherlock Holmes had interested me deeply in crime. And then after his disappearance, I never failed to read with care the various problems which came before the public. And I even attempted more than once for my own private satisfaction to employ his methods in their solution, though with indifferent success. There was none, however, which appealed to me like this tragedy of Ronald Adair. As I read the evidence at the inquest, which led up to a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, I realized more clearly that I had ever done the loss which the community had sustained by the death of Sherlock Holmes. There were points about this strange business which would, I was sure, have specially appealed to him, and the efforts of the police would have been supplemented or more probably anticipated by the trained observation and the alert mind of the, of the first criminal agent in Europe. Uh, so, yeah, that's just right, right there. That kind of sets the ground for um, Watson's current situation um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of The Empty House prior to his, um, re- his reunion with uh, his old friend. And there's something, there's something in those words that you just read for us that I think is worth, worth picking out. 
Because in, in this context, the word first, he, he refers to Holmes as the first criminal agent in Europe. Mm. It, it doesn't just suggest like pioneer, but also best, you know, as in, princi- yeah. as in principle. But yes. I, I find that really ironic following the previous story where um, uh, Mortimer, Dr. Mortimer, cla- cla- <laughs> yes. claims that Holmes is actually the second best. And it's almost like this is a, a rebuttal, you know? Yeah, and Holmes is also like passive-aggressively bitter about that comment too. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, well, tell me your story or leave. <laughs> That's pretty much uh, the ultimatum that Holmes presents to um, Mortimer. But again, this was pro- was this prior? Was this take place before Hound of the Baskervilles, or sorry, this this take place? After, the Hound of the Baskervilles, yeah. I, I should say, take place after the Empty House, or does it take place before? No, it, it takes place before. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So probably just before he got on the whole um connection with Moriarty most likely perhaps. yeah I be- yeah I think so yeah yeah okay I, he- I heard you say that um, you like Watson in this story a word that we tend to throw around a lot on this podcast for better or for worse is agency and yes. um, in some stories we see the second characters um, or the main character of Watson having agency and others we don't you think he's got it here huh yeah I mean you look at uh, for example uh, the following page, uh, second page, I guess, of the story depends on how you're, what edition you have. But this is Watson's thoughts on the Adair murder, and this kind of reveals his investigative prowess. And we see that he's thinking like Holmes. A minute examination of the circumstances served only to make the case more complex. In the first place, no reason could be given why the young man should have fastened the door upon the inside. There was possibility that the murderer had done this and had afterwards escaped by the window. The drop was at least 20 feet, however, and a bed of crocuses in full bloom lay beneath. Neither the flowers nor, nor the earth showed any sign of having been disturbed, nor were there any marks upon the narrow strip of grass which separated the house from the road. Apparently, therefore, it was the young man himself who had fastened the door. But how did he come by his death? No one could have climbed to the window without leaving traces. Suppose a man had fired through the window. He would indeed be a remarkable shot who could, with a revolver, inflict so deadly a wound. Again, Park Lane is a frequented thoroughfare. There is a cab stand within 100 yards of the house. No one had heard a shot, and yet there was a dead man, and there was a revolver bullet, which had mushroomed out, as soft-nosed bullets will, and so inflicted a wound that was must have caused instantaneous death. Such were the circumstances of the Park Lane mystery, which were further complicated by entire absence of motive, since, as I have said, young Adair was not known to have any enemy, and no attempt had been made to remove the money or valuables in the room. Now, previous in other stories, I don't think, with rare exceptions, Watson does not see these kind of does not make these kind of observations. It's usually Sherlock explaining this to Watson or something like that, or Watson making terrible conclusions and then then Doyle as Sherlock basically showing Sherlock the, the more observant individual, right, in the writing. I found this here was Watson using the skills that Sherlock taught him to look at a crime scene and consider all different angles of that crime scene, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree with you. And the next paragraph continues, I think, maybe evidencing that fact, that that observation of yours even more, where uh, Watson says that, uh, you know, he's mulling over these facts in his mind. He's trying to get some theory um, and to find, quote, that line of least resistance, which my poor friend had declared to be the starting point of every investigation. So, yeah, I mean, Holmes believed in a starting point that was obvious. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And Watson is seeing the obvious and he's making these deductions and he's making good observations in that way. So Watson has spent three years, you know, mourning his friend and chooses to carry on his mantle in his own fashion. Uh, The passages I referenced, they demonstrate his loyalty to his friend and his partner in crime fighting. And I, I think these chapters do that. Now, of course, you have two is... Then you have 480, uh, my page is 486, but, you know, it will differ. This is like Watson's response. Holmes, I cried, is it really you? Can it indeed be that you are alive? Is it possible that you succeed in climbing out of that awful abyss? Now, this was my one criticism towards the development of Watson. I just don't think that would be the reaction of someone who just saw their friend come back from the dead. Uh, well, his, his first reaction is to faint, and I'm not so sure that a medical, yeah, a medical army that, surgeon would, would faint either. Uh, so I think we're seeing some, yeah, some unrealistic writing here, but for different reasons. I, I, can't, see, I can't see Watson fainting. Uh, no, because of the yeah. things he's seen in combat and you know the toughness of his metal, you can't see him asking that sort of plaintive question. And I, I think there's some there's some you know I wouldn't say poor writing, but certainly some inaccuracies or inconsistencies here. It's almost like as if Watson's investigative powers are automatically nullified as soon as Sherlock shows up. 
and it, yeah, I think, and, and, yeah, and yeah, he turns yeah, into yeah. it turns into almost like a damsel in distress, almost. Like, <laughs> yes, I think you're uh, right, though. I think I think that there is an effort with here brain, with brain fever. <laughs> there is an effort here on uh, Doyle's part to build up the romanticism of the scene. I mean this this is this is a scene that you know contemporary readers have been waiting for a long, long time, and yeah. I, I think it needs to be Holmes is back with you know this this great Anna's this great advantage over his pal and the big surprise factor and whatnot. So I, I, you know, I can understand why he's doing it, but it doesn't really feel consistent. No, it's true. But I guess, you know, again, this illustrates his improvement in the science of deduction, right? Uh, Before his fainting, of course. Um, In many ways though, like this develop, this early development that you see in him, this, or this hopeful development that you see of Watson in the beginning of the empty house. I'm almost intrigued to have Holmes and resurrection. Now it should have been delayed. You know, I think, so we so maybe got like one or two short stories with Watson on his own, but I don't think that would have sold very well. Well, even even if it was delayed longer in this story, I, I don't disagree with you because, you know, we read The Hound of the Baskervilles um, very recently and there was a monstrous delay between Watson uh, at Baskerville Hall and then Holmes being discovered in the Neolithic uh, ruins. You Watson know, is, is great because... Like Watson was effective in Hound of the Baskervilles too, is because one thing great about the Hound of the Baskervilles was a supporting cast. I mean, it's, it's the best supporting cast in all Sherlock Holmes novels, in my opinion. Yeah, so uh, I agree. I agree too. Thus far. Yeah, thus far, and I, I honestly feel that Watson is good is a good device of exploring people and how he, how he and he's a people person in that way, and uh, while Holmes is not a people person. But do you think though that do you think it would have worked? Let, let's just let's just throw this question on the table. Do you mm. think it, it could have worked for Watson to have made some leads on this himself, end up near or within the empty house, and then home step out of the shadows? Like, would it have worked the same way if Doyle had imitated that Baskerville, um, that Baskerville sort of play? I don't think so because uh, if this is ultimately the return, say. if this is a return of Holmes, Holmes has got to be the guy on top. He, Watson, yeah. Watson can't have so much information. He can't be this clever to be able to track Moran down. I think he needs to be stifled here towards the beginning of the story. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking more, almost something in the in the line of uh, of, this, of say like the third season premiere of the X Files, where if you if any, for those who watch the show, if you recall when. When Mulder was trapped in the boxcar and it was set on fire, and then he was given the blessing way um, ritual by the uh, local, um, where uh, were they? Navajo. Albert Holstein. Yeah, he's a Navajo. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. The Navajo. Exactly. Yeah. Because he. Did, I remember he did the coding and all that for the war. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Albert Holstein and like and the Navajo, and yeah, that, and that whole thing is that Mulder is going through this blessing way ritual, and he's hardly in the story. And it's mostly we see things through Scully's perspective, right? So I kind you of know, thought maybe yeah. the empty house would have been a little, maybe if we had a little bit of a delay. But I understand, given the demand too, that this is the return of Sherlock Holmes, and you got to put him front and center in that way, right? You do, especially after nine yeah. years, nine years on the lamb, you know. Yeah, the public but, wants what it yeah. wants, and, and you know we get a, a morsel of W on his own, uh-huh. uh, and. But the book enthusiast, you know, drops the veil and gives thousands of fans what what, what they want, right? I mean, that's, right. that's just that's just how it is. That's how it um, is. Following but Holmes' you do reveal, ra- you do raise an interesting point, though. Sorry, I just got to say, you raise an interesting point that we could perhaps explore at a later stage. Uh, is Fox Mulder, you know, a, a Sherlock Holmes figure? Like how well, Holmes, how Holmesian is he? He certainly yeah. has the intuition, and he certainly has some deductive reasoning. Um, and you know, Scully spends the first two seasons chasing after his guesses more than two seasons but yeah <laughs> yeah but you know what i mean like it's really yeah. it's really obvious in the first couple of seasons that she's just got no rights of her own yet no it's definitely true um uh, i was gonna say though is, is, and there's also a, another correlation with sherlock holmes is if you think about uh the little indiscretion that he and phoebe green did on sir arthur conan doyle's tomb mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i think that was that that was chris carter trying to put like his you know his newly born you know crusader you know in in the same pantheon there in in my opinion anyway uh right sorry you were getting distracted but that's interesting we are but anyways following holmes reveal watson immediately takes a backseat and is once again he's following along with holmes just as before by halfway through the story like if you look at like there's like the last paragraph on one of the pages reveals watson's impression of holmes um 
Holmes is bitter and quick to anger. He's snapping at Watson in regard to the use of a dummy in the apartment window. I am such a farcical. Am I such a farcical bungler? You know what I mean? And mm. I and noticed that too. Yeah, he's quite, yeah, quite sharp. Yeah, he's very sharp. But Watson does point out um, that it was indeed like old times when, at that hour, I found myself seated beside him in a hansom, my revolver in my pocket, and the thrill of adventure in my heart. Holmes was cold and stern and silent. As the gleam of the street lamps flashed upon his austere features, I saw that his brows were drawn down in thought and his thin lips compressed. I knew not what wild beasts we were about to hunt down in the dark jungle of criminal London, but I was well assured from the bearing of this master huntsman that the adventure was a most grave one, while the sardonic smile which occasionally broke through his ascetic gloom boded little good for the object of our quest. So Holmes is on a mission, and 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 he's he's rough on the he's rough around the edges here. He wants he's bitter, you know. Yeah. I, I he's here. To, he's eager to settle scores, and he, uh, there's a continuity of development from both characters, leaving off from the final problem, and even before making this a tale I find of strong emotional intensity for the dynamic duo. I feel Watson's matter of fact reaction to Holmes' return was not an entirely realistic reaction, and, and the, added to the feign as well, to the circumstances of having a friend suddenly return from the dead, but it is perhaps indicative of the times of people writing and how men would respond to men, and maybe too much emotion was would, would just not have been carried away through in that Victorian era. I, I, I don't know. It's hard well, to say. Uh, th- this is interesting to me as well, and I'm, I feel that you're right. I think that your, your mark, our mark, for the perpetu- or sorry for the principles here is largely going to rest on how you read this emotional intensity because to me um, the midsection of this there's a little bit too much of this um, this I'm not going to call it faux romanticism but like th- this must be an absolute goldmine for the, the the scholars or the Sherlockians or the you know the slash writer artists who who want <laughs> fan to, fiction yeah the fanfics that want to just kind of you know take stuff from here you, you've got you know <clears throat> Uh, perhaps it would be better if I gave you an account of the whole situation when that work is finished. I'm full of curiosity. I should much prefer to hear it now. You will come with me tonight, when you like and where you like. This is indeed like the old days. We shall have a time for a mouthful of dinner before we need to go. Well then, about that chasm. And he goes on, right? And then he's like, then he then he talks about then he talks about Mycroft, and he's like. Uh, Watson, I owe you many apologies, my dear, but it was all important that it should be thought I was dead, and it was quite certain that you would not have written so convincing of an account of my unhappy end had you not thought yourself that it was true. Several times during the last three years I've taken up my pen to write to you, but always I feared lest your affectionate regard for me should tempt you to some indiscretion which would betray my secret. Like, there, there is a lot of this sort of, uh, uh, this is a lot of romantic stuff in a here and, 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 and you know what like i don't have a problem with it really but i it distracted me a little bit at this stage mm. because i that's not why i enjoy the stories like i enjoy their friendship and i enjoy the love that they have for each other for sure whatever let's call yes. it, let's call it what it is but i didn't feel and perhaps it's because i didn't have nine years between the stories you know like i'll, I'll that's fair enough i didn't have the time between the stories but I just kind of felt like, okay, it's a little heavy-handed, but maybe it's heavy-handed deliberately because the audience wanted something that would that would give you a, a swell of the heartstrings, you know? Yeah, if I could offer a bit of a historical context just for a second here. Uh, I was reading recently um, A Team of Rivals, which is a biography of Abraham Lincoln and his, uh, and his, cab- and his wartime cabinet. And one of the things they mentioned in, in the early years of like Lincoln and Chase and uh, all those other people in Lincoln's cabinet was that back then it was very common for young men to form bonds with each other. And these bonds were actually even more intense than one they would have with, with their wives. Like men would share the same bed together, not in that, you know, biblical sense, but just in the way of just how, you know, they would lodge together. They would sleep in the same bed together uh, they would do everything together. They were, they were very, there was a strong, there was a very strong sense of intimacy in young men, you know, in the uh, early Victorian to late Victorian period. And, I mean, this was in the United States, so even more so, I probably, I would say, in England as well, right? I mean, and, and who knows even more. So uh, people may, you know, misconstrue that as possible that maybe these people were 
perhaps they were having, I don't know, homosexual relations. I don't know. You know, that whatever. I mean, I'm not judging or anything like that. All I'm saying is, is that um, we we shouldn't jump to jump the gun saying that, you know, this that these these hints that Doyle is giving us that possibly he's trying to I, I don't know we I don't think we should read into in, into that direction uh, it's just more about what the relationship is between like young men growing up or men living together and the intimacy from that of, of a platonic friendship uh-huh. do you catch do you catch my drift I catch exactly what you're saying um, and I don't I don't disagree with you I'm I'm not I don't read much into the the homosexual ideas of this mm. and, and believe me my uh, my additions are full of annotations to that effect <laughs> not, not not trying to sell it but just simply stating it it's there and, that, and I think that's the greatest thing about these, these clinger texts one of the best compliments that I can give him um, in the work that he's done annotating these is is giving you a real good survey of opinions that exist mm. on different source material points uh, without really saying one thing or the other you know it's more like an encyclopedic walkthrough than anything okay. else and um, he himself doesn't push a theory on you it's more like here's a survey of what people are thinking and there's all kinds of this you know the type of homosexual reading of these stories and and I agree with you that context plus nine years of separation from the characters uh, with the public have led to you know this maybe coming maybe coming off the page is a little more saccharine than than it normally would more more romantic yeah anyway look um okay so let's just let's just speed up here a little bit now yeah let's score the uh the principles i so gave it 4.5 you went 4.5 i wasn't quite as generous as that i went to 4 i mean it's still not a bad mark but uh, I, I didn't go 4.5 um I, 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 was feel... sat, I was satisfied with the development of the characters from the final problem and continuing onwards right i liked i like holmes's bit of more of a bitter steel that he wielded in this story and i like watson's agency ding 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 ding, ding that word again yeah. uh in, in in this tale in particular uh and uh there are some good passages here and overall and i was intrigued by the villain of this story as well i actually found this a better tale overall than the, than uh the final problem mm-hmm I thought it was consistent uh, throughout the story, at least. Uh, Holmes was cold, uh, a little nasty towards Watson. And, you know, I take that as part of his character, really. Um, because as I've said to you before, I read him as a very uh, high-functioning, autistic type. And I can see sometimes the swings of emotion without justification. They yeah. Make, they make sense to me. It follows with the, the profile. The, the, so The gears shifting the uh, the overreactions of something, of something. yeah. Yeah, I, I like I like what Holmes does. I like how he uh, he pulls everything in, sets the trap. It is it is good. It is clever, um, but I think there's better features to the story than the two of them. And mm. maybe maybe talking about the investigation will pull it out. So go ahead. Um, what's your score for, or your thoughts on investigation? Uh, the Adira murder is a great teaser to, to the story, creating a necessary suspense of a mystery for us to ponder. On top of that, there's another enigma. At what juncture or what connection is this to the return of Sherlock Holmes, mm. right? Yeah. Watson's investigation to the Adair murder is what unites him with Holmes. It is very convenient that the culprit of the Adair murder ends up being the man, being you know the man that Sherlock is pursuing. But the writing manages to tie this together in a believable fashion, so it doesn't seem like the coincidence is as, as, as implausible as it could have been. Uh, Holmes's narration of the contest at Reichenbach, his faking his own death, and all that follows is written eloquently and excitingly enough for this purpose. Uh, the added mystery of what circumstances Holmes will return from the dead, it elevates what is a pretty standard mystery as well. Locked room mystery, as, as, you, say, as you said. We're more interested with the means of Sherlock returning and how the culprit slash last connection Moriarty will be brought to, to, to justice. And for that, all those pieces, I give it a four. Yeah, I was four as well. Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was engaging, entertaining. I wasn't bored when I was reading it. But I thought ultimately for a return, a return of the character and a reuniting you know, moment for these two figures, I would like to have seen, and although I enjoyed it, right? I did enjoy it, the whole sniper thing at the end. I would have liked to have seen something a little bit more that lived up to the plummet or the supposed plummet of the of the falls like he's been away for three years uh you know i would like to have seen something more than a little cat and mouse game in the last mm. section of the story i don't know what i want but i wanted something that just was a bit more had a bit more punch like i don't know 
if you want a, if you want a good uh, variation of that standoff, uh, the the Sherlock Holmes a Game of Shadows, the Moriarty Reichenbach scene is it's pretty it's pretty cool in that actually. Mm. Just a YouTube of a clip or something might satisfy your uh, your need. There is all I'm saying. That said, you gave it a four. Okay. What did you think uh, about what do you think about the writing? I mean, we've talked about this romantic quality that came into it for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, how did you feel the story was paced? Did you did you like it? I like the pacing of the story. Yeah, I thought the teaser was a great setup. I, I, I and I liked how there was kind of a mystery within a mystery. There was like that meta mystery of how is he coming back, and then then there's the mystery itself. You know, the locked room and how it connects. And they managed to connect those paces. I mean, it was a very taut story and how and how that was done. And I didn't think it it it, it rambled on in, in in the way that it could. I, I think it was economic in that way. So I, I I don't think it was a great story, but it was a good story. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I was just, um, the ending of the story where we got this info drop, kind of, you know? Oh, yeah, the info drop, again, is a curse of Sherlock Holmes when yeah, it comes to... Uh, it, it is kind of. Taking, but... me, taking, taking me out of the narrative a little bit there, out of, out of the, I guess, the emotional catharsis. But before we get the info drop, we get the the confrontation between Holmes and Moran, you know, when he captures him. And I like that scene that's written, like instead of it just being an arrest scene and then we go home for breakfast or dinner and then we get the info drop. Like there is there is a great speech given by Holmes here. And yeah. I, I kind of love – I'm going to say seething pride. I don't know if that's the right expression, but it kind of sounds like that to me, the, the sort of – the metaphorical significance of what he's saying here. Um, the colonel, the, sta- the colonel stared at my friend like a man in a trance. You cunning, cunning fiend, was all that he could say. I've not introduced you yet, said Holmes. This gentleman is Colonel Sebastian Moran, one of Her Majesty's Indian Army and the best heavy game shot that our Eastern Empire has ever produced. I believe I'm correct, Colonel, in saying that your bag of tigers still remains unrivaled? The fierce old man said nothing, but still glared at my companion. With his savage eyes and bristling mustache, he was wonderfully like a tiger himself. I wonder that my very simple stratagem could deceive so old a shikari, said Holmes. It must be very familiar to you. Have you not tethered a young kid under a tree, laying uh, laying above it with your rifle, and waited for the bait to bring up your tiger? This empty house is my tree, and you are my tiger. You've possibly had other guns in reserve in case there should be several tigers, or in the unlikely supposition of of your own aim failing you. These, he pointed around, are my other guns. The parallel, the parallel is exact. Colonel Moran sprang forward with a snarl of rage, but the constables dragged him back. The fury upon his face was terrible to look at. I confess that you had one small surprise for me, said Holmes. I did not anticipate that you yourself would make use of the empty house as this convenient front window. I had imagined you as operating from the street where my friend Lestrade and his merry men were awaiting you. With that exception, all has gone as I expected. Anyway, and then and then Moran's like, "Look, okay, do I have to stay here and listen to this guy?" You know, like, I, I like that scene. I think that was quite a good scene. Um, yeah, he, Sherlock anyway. Holmes was, was was being a great dick. I think that maybe that's what our our crick was getting at, was saying how like, ha ha ha, Sherlock could be such a dick, and that's totally true. But he was being a dick in a good way, you know, like yeah, uh, he was yeah. uh, goading the villain a bit, and uh, it, uh, that was enjoyable. You cunning, cunning fiend. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so yeah, fours for each of us. Good scores, not the best, but very good, solid scores. Um, I also like uh, Mrs. Hudson in this, but we'll get to her in a minute. What about oh, the per- yeah. what about the perpetrator then? I know you've already said a few words about Moran, but um, what'd you give him? I gave Moran a four. Yeah, uh, like his dead master. We never really get a beat on him, but I like how Watson compared him to a tiger. That was kind of cool, and it kind of fit him. You know, you are what you eat, kind of in, in a way. You mm-hmm. you you are a predator who is a predator, despite how civilized and classy you are, uh, playing whist and cheating at it, right? I mean, the guy is just kind of like a pretender, a social pretender in his own way, mm-hmm. without Moriarty around, right? Uh, he has a clear hatred of Holmes and loyalty to Moriarty. The following passage, you know, that you did <laughs> indicates this. Uh, he's cold-blooded and a cheater. He's stealing funds from a whist game and then murdering a dare who planned to go out, you know, who planned to out him as a cheater. Professional soldier. He's almost like a dark Watson, you know. He'd served in Afghanistan, India... He's a master of the air rifle. You know, one wonders why such a man would be loyal to Moriarty, and what explanation do we have for his character? That's what I was I was wondering. Uh, dishonorable discharge, I guess. Uh, I don't know, but why would a man like him, who served as a rifleman, you know, I, I guess he went to war like some people do nowadays, just just to shoot things, as opposed to serving his country or the empire, or maybe something happened down the road that made him change his perspective. You know, like 
you know, why do some soldiers become private military contracts afterwards, right? Yeah, so, yeah. well, I, I like yeah. them a little more than you actually. I went four point five oh, okay. uh, for him Fair as, enough. A, Fair as enough. a perpetrator, and I think I went there because I like the idea of him being the one at the falls who watches Holmes and launches the boulders down. Like, I like the continuation of him there as having some part to play in Holmes's mindscape over the three years of absence from London. I like I like the lingering quality of him and I like the the silence with which he attacks. And I and although it is an info drop, I actually like the backstory of this character a lot more than some of the other ones that we get, like about oh yeah. a rich American tycoon whose father does you know, like I find yeah, it this yeah. this is an interesting villain. He's a guy who I think you could really adapt easily for any well not any, but certainly our time today too, like you say, you know, ex military contract killer. Like I like this type of stuff this is interesting to me yeah i'm surprised that the sherlock series did nothing with that character like yeah. nothing at all the fact that the robert downey jr movies use sebastian Sir moran in an effective kind of great henchman kind of way and the the action and the much much better bbc series didn't that's mm -hmm. that's saying something you know where the writing went on that show but enough of that yeah i like i really like the description of moran on the same page there it was a tremendously virile and yet sinister face which was turned towards us with the brow of, of a philosopher above and the jaw of a sensualist below. The man must have started with great capacities for good or for evil. So here we're getting actually some bit more description on, on kind of like what Watson thinks of his person and why he may be, why he ended up being the man that he was. But one could not look upon his cruel blue eyes with their dro drooping cynical lids or upon the fierce aggressive nose and the threatening deep-lined brow without reading nature's plainest danger signals he took no heed of any of us but his eyes were fixed upon holmes's face with expression in which hatred and amazement were equally blended you fiend he kept on muttering you clever clever fiend <laughs> so yeah i, I, th I think he's I, th I think he's definitely uh i would say one of the top villains in the holmes villain pantheon so far so far uh i think for my part you know just to finish off with them the half mark and I've written, I'll tell you, just as I've written it, it's only a simple point, but the half mark came off because I think that his link, as it was written at least, uh, to Ronald Adair is really quite tenuous. Like, I, I, don't, see these guys, I don't see these guys as card partners, you know, myself personally. Uh, I can see him maybe taking advantage of Adair, but there's no real event, there's no real evidence that that's what he's trying to do. Give Brand seems like you give him a target and he'll take it out yeah, for you. He's yeah. used to that. But when he tries to play the game, his own criminal games himself, he's terrible at it. Like Adair was basically about to out him and his only option was to basically splatter his brains. So. Uh -huh. Anyway, there you go. Um, <clears throat> I do... I'll say this overall, okay, because it's kind of like an investigation point, kind of like a perpetrator's point, but... And maybe like a secondary character's point too. So I'm just going to basically say what I want to say for the rest of the story in this, okay? Uh, of all of the of all of the stories we've read so far, these Sherlock Holmes stories, this one for me gives a lot of James Bond feeling, a lot of Bond vibe, and mm. I, de I deconstruct it out this way. You know, you've got modified weapons. Yeah. You've got a stakeout. You've got yep. the death of an important henchman. You've got an alias and a disguise. You've got. Mrs. Hudson and Lestrade, like the old familiar lighter and Q, yeah. doing, doing work on the inside, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think that more than some of the others, this lifts up the the backdrop in a way that uh, the, the James Bond novels and the James Bond films give you those expected tropes, you know? Like, it, it's kind of like we're getting a full character piece here. And I, I think that is really cool. Like, I think it works for the story. I don't think it works enough, though, to give it more than a four and you know four point five respectively. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I get a lot of 007 vibe here. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. There, there is kind of a spy atmosphere to, to the whole, to, to the whole situation, and perhaps you know maybe in the end this is kind of uh, people say a lot, a lot of the spy novel might have been originated from Sherlock Holmes a little, a little bit, just because of the globe trotting perhaps and, and whatnot. And uh, was there another famous like spy character prior to James Bond, like in literature, um, like 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 espionage wise? Mm, uh, I'm sure I'm sure there were some precursors, but I don't know them off the top of my head, and I'd have to mm -hmm. go look it up. But I think you know, Poe and Doyle all had their part to play in modifying it. Plus, the political situation um, would have would have endorsed and encouraged the creation of a spy character in a way that you know this hadn't. You know this, yeah. even though the Vic Queen Victoria had her own spies, and we we know this, but yes. Anyway, right. Let's let's move on. Um, basically, Environs. I'll do environs and my secondary 
uh, real quick. I just said something about the secondary. Lestrade back. Good to see him. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Hudson is cool. You know, she's doing something. Even if it's not a lot, she's doing something. Adair seems all right, but we don't really, you know, get to yeah. see him very much. Um, the environment of the story is is nice, actually. I, I, I like the environment here more than okay. I thought I would at first reading because you get all these these Park Lane and Oxford Street mansions and sort of the, the really expensive, wealthy, well-to-do London families are all there. And, you know, Lord Balmoral, I don't know if you picked up on this, by the way. Um, I picked up on the name and I looked into it and then I discovered that I was indeed correct and Klinger told me more. But Lord Balmoral, from whom Adair and Moran collect their winnings at the card table, yes, is the unseen father of Lord Robert St. Simon from The Noble Bachelor. And, oh. and Lord Balmoral's horse ran in the Wessex Cups, in the Wessex Cup in uh, Silver Blaze. Oh, wow. Cool. Very cool, cool the way that, that he's kind of using these little offstage characters to still create the bigger world of Holmes. And, and I give him props for that. Um, the environment, it's almost, it's, it's almost, I, like, um, almost like a comic book mythology in a way that, that, that Doyle is kind of developing in many ways, like that whole universe is, yeah. connection. Yeah. yeah. Well, the seeds, the seeds are there for it. Uh, the environment is cool. You know, the, the dark... Um, the the dark empty room obviously uh, of the house and then kind of how that oh I gotta say something about that too um, one of the notes I was reading was uh, arguing against the possibility of Moran being able to take the shot because by using physics and get this right like uh, by using physics and sort of geometry to understand the average height of buildings on Baker Street at the time and the low uh, or the low flooring and ceiling of and window height of the apartment across the road. They were measuring out everything, basically, and saying that unless Colonel Moran was standing on a driving bus or a passing by bus, there's no way he'd be able to hit through the window at Baker Street. <laughs> and I just think to myself, okay, at what point is your scholarship just going into stupid, crazy town? Like, yeah, it's, it's, like just, Star Trek, it's like Star Trek nerd dumb right there. Yeah, it is. Anyway, I went four for environments, and I went four for secondary characters. So I got a total score of 20.5. Environs, I, the idea of crime scene is sketched out clearly for the reader. He allows us to visualize the murder in our mind's eye. I like 221 Baker Street with the Sherlock bust and Miss Hudson out of eyesight, you know. The dark shadows of the empty house, the, the, the like, the ribbons in the, that are, that are the walls and the plank and the, and the, and the, and, you know, the, the planks that they walk on and whatever in the empty house. The shadow cast on the wall of Moran, fire, about to aim the rifle. That was pretty suspenseful stuff. I, I enjoyed that. Uh, so I gave the environs 3.5. I didn't delve into the Park Lane kind of stuff as deep as you did in that respect. Uh, perhaps I should have done more research on those places. Um, I'll, I'll look for that in the future. But 3.5 was my mark for the environs. And for the principles, I found there was a yarn with a very thin supporting cast. Yeah, Adair, not much development. Miss Hudson was there, of course, but she didn't really do much besides follow orders. Lestrade yeah, but, is there. But when He's have happy. we ever seen her do that? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, the fact that's that she was involved true. is pretty cool. True. Like, she's always a mention. She's always a passing remark. Here, she actually speaks and says, on my knees, like you told me to. Like, I, I like that idea of, of bringing everybody back for this story and reminding us that, yeah, Holmes is surrounded by good people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it definitely shows more of some of the, some of the agency that Ms. Hudson has in, in adaptations than she does in the actual novels. Anyway, I'm not I mean, trying to influence her, her, her story. No, uh, of course, of course, I understand. Uh, still, I, I found 3.5. I think it's a fair review for yeah, the uh, uh, for for the um, supporting cast. All right, that's my that that that's my say, and I'm sticking to it. So you, my friend, are 19.5 overall, and I'm 20.5. And this okay. is a bit of a rarity because I like this story a little bit more than you, which is cool. Oh, Normally, uh, I'm I'm arguing a little more than you. Oh uh, well, you know. <laughs> We all, you know, have different opinions and uh, different different views, of course. Speaking but, of different uh, opinions and different views, you got a choice of musical selection. Uh, this is our only instrumental selection of uh, the afternoon. I've got a door number one and a door number two. Uh, both are soundtrack cues from very different films. I'll go through door number one. Door number one. You have selected uh, a track called "Setting the Trap." By James Horner for his score to Missing. Hmm. The other one was a John Williams score for a Black Sunday, and it was a track entitled Preparations. So I guess this works well because The Missing, the name of the film, is uh, also, I guess, what Holmes is for most of this story and for the last <laughs> nine years. So here we go. 